This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. We weren't about like raising a ton of money, go big or go home. It was like, hey, let's raise a little bit of money, figure out what we can do kind of one step at a time, always wanting it to be a win-win with our employees, with our clients, with our vendors, and really kind of sticking to that kind of cultural philosophy, which I think is more reflective of the Coloradans that I know and grew up around than West Coast, East Coast. Hi, and welcome to the Sliced Podcast, where we share startup stories from founders, investors, and CEOs from across the globe. A little bit about our platform, Startup Blog Post, is that we're a community where aspiring entrepreneurs and venture capital ecosystem stakeholders can share meaningful insights, engage with colleagues and peers, and stay informed. Welcome back to the Sliced Podcast. Today's guest is Steve Swoboda, CFO and co-founder of SpotX, a global video advertising and monetization platform utilized by premium publishers and broadcasters like Disney, Samsung, WarnerMedia, and more. Prior to SpotX, Steve founded Booyah Advertising, a digital advertising firm that started as an image-paid search network after the dot-com bust. Hi, Steve. Thanks so much for being here. Hey there. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. We are so excited. This is your first podcast. First ever on this side of the microphone. I love to listen to podcasts. Yeah, we are so excited to have you here and get to talk to a Denver native first and foremost. Actually, I grew up in Fort Uh, Collins. Oh, okay. Colorado native. Yeah. Nice. Okay. So what has it been like for you to see the changes in Colorado in the last, I don't know, 15 to 20 years? Mixed, I guess. On balance, I'm pretty psyched about it. I feel like Colorado and the Front Range in particular has kind of come into its own as a legitimate place for business, culture, community. Uh, It's recognized, I think, where, I don't know, growing up, I don't think it always necessarily was, Mm -hmm. which maybe some people might think it's worse now, but I think it's great. Traffic in Denver, I don't love that, but and the cost of housing. But other than that, I think there's a lot of positives that outweigh the negatives. This will date this episode, but obviously the All-Star game is coming up, which will be nuts. I'm pumped <laughs> about that. I'll be there. Are you are? With my best friend, Johnny Dapper. His birthday is July 9th. Mine's the 12th. So we oh. always do something for our birthday. Sometimes we play around a golf. But this year, we're going to the All-Star Game. I'm wow. a Rockies fan, season ticket holder. My grandpa got his job during the Depression. He was a like a minor league baseball player playing for the Kansas City Power and Light companies. Mm-hmm. And he started Little League Baseball with some other former minor league players in Kansas City. So, yeah, baseball's in my my family blood. I played as a kid. was not good, but um, <laughs> It's a harder it. game than people think, honestly. I just went to Rockies game last weekend, so— Go Rockies. Go Rockies. Loved it. All right. So 
let's jump in. So you grew up in Colorado. Yeah. And you went to CU Boulder. That's right. What was that like? Best four years of your life. It was awesome. <laughs> yes, it was great. You know, it was a little bit intimidating at first, right? I grew up in Fort Collins and at CU, a lot of kids from all over, California, East Coast, some rich kids. So a little intimidating at first, but I kind of found my niche there, both academically and socially, and it wound up being great. And I I think a real growth experience for me, I think I got a really good education in the business school there. I was an accounting major, right? I'm an accountant. That's why I'm so cool. But, you know, I also, I feel like, got confidence in that being exposed to people from all over the country, some of which, you know, got to private schools, came from families with money. It gave me confidence that, you know, like, hey, I'm in class with this person and I'm holding my own. Yeah, I deserve right? to be here. I got in just like they did. Got in mm-hmm. and then performed at the same level, usually. And so that then emboldened me to, I think, think that I could maybe do more than I otherwise might have thought I could have when I was just growing up. Mm-hmm. So then you finished your education there with an accounting degree. So That's at this right. point, you're an accountant. So was your first job out of, out of school as an accountant? Yeah. Yep. Okay. I went to go uh, right out of college, went to go work for Pricewaterhouse before it was PricewaterhouseCoopers, okay. before they merged with Coopers and Librand, in the Denver office. So it was like kind of Entry-level job, but kind of a grinder job, lots of hours, low pay. But the great thing about working in kind of as a CPA for one of those big firms is you get to work with a lot of different clients, different industries, see businesses, see things that you think work, don't work. One of my clients was a technology company that had international operations, was a data storage company based up in Louisville. And I got to be friendly with the international controller, and it kind of opened my eyes to, you know, the possibility of, like, working for an international company abroad. Our firm was international, Pricewaterhouse, and they had this program where you could apply to work overseas for a couple of years. And no one from the Denver office, which was relatively small, had done it in a few years. But I applied for it, and then when I got promoted to be a manager— I went to Budapest, helped get the office started there. This was in the kind of the early 90s. So there was a lot of change happening, right? They were moving from a socialist economy to free market. That also was just a transformative experience for me. Met a lot of really interesting people. Was also super challenging, both personally and professionally for me, but uh, uh, it was great. That's so cool. Was that your first time going overseas then? I traveled, like, you know, I'd been to Europe for a couple of weeks backpacking. Okay, so, okay, cool. But it was the first time living outside of Colorado. And I went sight unseen, right? I didn't kind of go there before. And I remember my uh, one of my best friends, his wife had a baby, like the weekend I moved there. And so I moved, you know, I had like this great group of friends in Denver, had a nice girlfriend, like I had a great life. But I was like, I want this adventure. I'm going, you know go over there, and I'm kind of freaking out. I got there. It was a holiday weekend, which in hindsight was bad planning because, like, I was just there waiting. And it wasn't like I was on vacation because I'm like, well, I'm going to be here for two years, you know. But I called him because I was, you know, kind of homesick and lonely. And he's like, I'm so glad you called. Cassie just had our baby, you know. And I was thrilled for him. And then when we hung up, I just thought, you know, like, what am I doing with my life? You know, here I am. Am I off track? Yeah, am I off track? (laughs) My buddy just, you know, he had his family. But, uh, it wound up being great, and in part because 
then I think this plays into maybe what we're going to talk about later. You know, when I was working in the U.S., our clients were a lot of public companies or private companies that kind of had their act together, controls, their clients. I mean, the client staff knew what they were doing, and we would go in, do some audit work or whatever kind of consulting we were doing. But in Hungary, nobody knew what they were doing. It was all changing. They were trying to, like, take these businesses and see what they would look like through a kind of Western financial perspective. And you would just have to figure out how to get things done, which made me think that – or gave me, again, confidence that, like, I could go into situations and – figure out, okay, what needs to happen here? How are we going to make it happen? And then you find a way. But it was stressful, but worked with some really smart people, like some of my Hungarian colleagues, because we could pay a lot. Like we were hiring some of the smartest people I ever worked with because they'd be making like twice as much as their parents. Mm -hmm. And they had to speak English. The, you know, the language of the, of the office was English, but like a lot of our clients didn't speak English. So you'd be like in these translation situations. And then by the time I left Hungary after kind of the end of the second year, I, my Hungarian was pretty good, at least listening. So I would sometimes you'd be having these client conversations and I would know what they were saying before it translated, but it would give me like an extra, you know, 20 seconds to think about exactly how I want to That was to my next question. Can you speak Hungarian? Ejkicit, which means a little bit. Oh. Unfortunately, wow. just a little. Wow. But All right. So you you remember it now. So that's something. It was ingrained somewhere. Yeah. And it's a great language. A lot of it's easy to rhyme with it. And then also, like nobody, you know, there's more people living in Mexico City that speak Spanish than there are people in the world that speak Hungarian. So with my friends, like I have a good friend who I met in Budapest uh, who lives in Denver. We see him. And in fact, that's who he and his wife introduced me to my wife. But, like, you can be out and you can, like, speak Hungarian. Like, he and I can say things to each other in Hungarian. And it's like a secret language because oh, you're pretty sure nobody else so is going to know, right? <laughs> yeah. You would hope. That's yeah, once hope. in a while, if they do, then you're busted. <laughs> you can just see them light up. Yeah. Okay, so you're in Hungary. You finished there. You're there for two years. Yeah. You come back to the U.S. Yeah, yeah. And when I came back, I went to New York. Okay. And so you didn't come back to Denver. You no. went back to New York. That's okay. right. Yeah. And I was working in a group called Transaction Services. So we would do financial due diligence for mergers and acquisitions. So I kind of wanted to – I did some of that work when I was in Hungary because there was inbound Western investment into Hungarian companies or some greenfield investments. And so that was an exciting time. It was, you know, kind of late 90s, New York – Things were booming. New York was kind of cleaned up. You know, Giuliani had cleaned up Times Square. It was before September 11th, right? Like, so it was like a kind of a golden time, I thought, to be living in New York. Super fun. Like, so we would do like financial due diligence, structuring for M&A. I started working on a bunch of technology and internet related deals. So this was sort of like the first internet boom. And, and I quickly realized, you know, which is not any epiphany, but it dawned on me that, like, hey, there's a kind of transformation in the way people are getting information, entertainment. And I really wanted to figure out a way to use my skill set in that industry. So I worked in New York for a couple of years, but then I wanted to get back to Colorado. My dad was still here. He's since passed, but, you know, he was on his own. I don't have any siblings. And so, you know, I started looking for opportunities back in Colorado and that's what led me ultimately to kind of starting our companies. Okay. And so the first one was Booyah Networks. That's right. Great name, by the way. Thank you. So what, I guess, what was the catalyst for Booyah? 
And then kind of what was the need, I guess, that you guys saw that you needed to fill with that? Yeah. So I got recruited. When I, I came back to Colorado to work at a technology company, I was the director of corporate development. So again, kind of doing M&A work, but in-house. And that company, it was an email marketing company, just didn't have a lot of confidence in the future, didn't really love the management team, the senior management team. And I got an opportunity to be the CFO of a kind of venture capital-backed startup that was doing like some image search technology. So if the technology would have worked kind of as envisioned, you would have been able to like upload a picture and say, find me more lamps that look like this lamp. Or click on a lamp that you saw on a website, find me more lamps that look like that. So there were some online shopping applications, that kind of stuff. So we had a prototype, didn't really work great. And we had some guys who were out kind of trying to sell it to. We had one beta client to some other clients, and they kept asking, like, hey, have you ever thought about, like, a paid search model with images? And we were like, well, we don't even know what that is. We researched it, and we thought, hey, this is maybe a better way to – it's going to be less of a lift from a technological standpoint, less kind of R&D, and – faster path to revenue. So it's basically paid search, you know, it's the it's the sponsored listings that, you know, how Google made all its money kind of in Google 1.0 version, right? And this was actually before Google had sponsored search results. So it was early and we thought, hey, if there's an image associated with it, you know, it will be have a higher click-through rate, right? Especially for things that are visual, right? Like furniture, that kind of thing. And so we went to our board, which was these venture guys, and said, hey, you know, we've got this idea. We'd like to repurpose the business, you know, pivot around this business model. And this is like, gosh, early spring of 2001. And they said, yeah, you know, things are really rough right now. The kind of the dot-com bust was happening. And they said, we're going to rationalize the portfolio. We've got, you know, eight companies. We only have enough funds to back two. And we're going to wind you down. We're not going to do it. So my partner, or at the time, my boss, Mike Sheehan, who is our CEO of this company, and I walked out, and we loved this idea. And he said, I still really want to do this idea. And I said, me too. And he said, let's start our own company. And I said, yeah, awesome. Let's do it. And this was interesting because I feel like my dad had started out working like for a big company, worked for General Motors, and then his job involved like going to dealerships and seeing how many cars they wanted and selling the dealerships allotments of Buicks and stuff. And then we moved to Hayes, Kansas, and he met some other guys, and they just start, decided to start their own business. So then when I was five years old, they did that, right? So like, And he was about the same age. He was like 35 when he did this. So like, I don't know if that was subliminal for me, but I was kind of ready to do that. And I was like, yeah, Mike, let's do this. So we went, you know, we're like, we're going to raise money. We're going to start this image enhanced paid search business. But it was like the nuclear winter of kind of internet related stuff. So we went to some venture firms and nobody wanted to have anything to do with us. Like, you know, it was like telling them you had in this era, like, yeah, I just got a COVID test and haven't gotten the results back. They'd be like, okay, get out of my office immediately. Right. right like, they couldn't picture it. They couldn't visualize it. Didn't quite believe in it. Well, and I think people had lost so much money on internet related investments that it had just pancaked. And so I think a lot of people were burned and gun shy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, you know, we had 
like our credentials were we had like well Mike had he'd been a successful company that had an exit through M&A but like you know I was an accountant we hadn't really like done it ourselves and so I don't blame them for not investing but we did get like you know we passed the hat Mike's dad his brother-in-law one of my roommates from college who'd done well all chipped in Kind of like a friends and family round, I totally guess, right? Totally friends and family. Yeah. Yeah, that's okay. exactly what it was. Mike downsized his house. I got a second mortgage. Aww. We literally, like, passed the hat and raised about 500000 bucks. But the best part of it was there was a local entrepreneur guy named Pete Essler, awesome guy, who we went to him and we're like, Pete, starting this company, we'd really love to get to invest. And he said, well, I got two conditions. He's like, what's the idea? We told him. I don't know if he really even got it or not. He goes, but I like you guys. He goes, I need to know how much each of you personally is putting in. We told him, right? And he's like, I know that's significant to you personally. So you've got real skin in it. And that's one of my conditions. He said, my other condition is, he goes, I've got this Lamborghini that I don't want it. I got bought it for this guy who was doing this business for me. And that's gone under and he's gone back to India so I need to get rid of this Lamborghini so I'm going to sign the title over to you guys you sell it whatever you can get for it that's what I'm in for okay a little collateral (laughs) (laughs) yeah if you will it was an in-kind investment yeah so that was the first thing that we did as a company is we sold Sold this used Lamborghini I thought you were going to say he gave it to you guys as like a as a gift but I can see that's not the case it was not a gift (laughs) Uh, no, it was his investment. And okay. whatever you can sell it for, that's what we're in for. So we nobody wanted to buy it because, you know, a lot of people had lost a lot of money. Again, this is like a tough time economically. So we sold it to, like, there was a Lamborghini dealership in Golden for, like, 75 grand. And that's what he was in for. So that was part of, like, the half million bucks that we put together. Okay. And then we launched. And it was kind of unspectacular. We were... We had decent technology, but, you know, it's like a chicken and egg thing with, you know, with models where you've got supply and demand. You've got to have enough users searching to get people wanting to advertise listings, and you got to have critical mass of listings to get the users drawn to it. So we limped along. We got a couple little deals, and then we wound up kind of being a reseller for this product that Yahoo had. But after a couple of years, we just realized, you know, we were kind of underfunded. And, and then, you know, Google got in the game. We realized, like, we were not going to be a leader in paid search. But we still had kind of eked out a business, and we realized, hey, this is a pretty good model, right? Like, we didn't really know what we were doing, and we're still, like, we're break-even. We're growing a little bit. So what are going to be some of the next iterations around this business model that used the same attributes of, you know, real-time optimization, auction-based. And we thought, hey, with the proliferation of broadband connectivity, there'll be a lot more rich content consumed, video content, games. So we wanted to create a platform for monetizing that video content, essentially, that got consumed over the internet. Originally, it was just all browser-based. So we took kind of the engine, the auction engine for the paid search platform, moved that over to what was originally a division of Booyah, 
which we called the Booyah Broadcasting Group, which Cute. was the, which is the, <laughs> know, the BBG. Uh, that was the precursor to, to SpotX. And then we made Booyah kind of a pure services business, which is, you know, just kind of ad agency, no proprietary technology. And Booyah actually still running today. It's run by a couple guys who also bought it from us and the other shareholders named Troy Lerner, Dan Gallagher, great guys, smartest guys in digital advertising that I know, uh, certainly the smartest guys in town about it. And then we kind of went running on uh, SpotX, and that was pretty tough going for a long time as well. People, one, we thought, okay, we've got this great platform. You know, you can optimize it real time. You can target exactly who you want to. It's auction-based. And so we went, we built it very similar to the paid search model. And we went out to the folks that controlled the video advertising budgets, which were the ad agencies who went to New York, called on some of them and said, hey, we've got this great new platform, this and that. What we didn't appreciate, though, is that unlike search, where the search media and the search monetization of paid search were developed in relatively close time proximity to each other, with video and video advertising, there was already like a long established paradigm because television had been around, right? So we showed like, we've got this platform, technology, you can optimize yourself. And these ad agency guys were like, no, we don't want to learn your platform. We don't, you know, no. In fact, I still think like the ad agencies wish the internet had never come around because they had a sweet deal, right? Like making 15%, just giving ad buys to four networks and then cable. Right? So so then we go to, you know, we're like, okay, you don't want to learn the platform. They're like, but we are interested in testing out some, if you can give me, you know, a million video ad impressions targeted at women in the Western United States, like here, here's an insertion order or a, you know, buy, go fulfill that and let's see how it goes. So then if you think of the exchange at this point, like we had renamed the company Spot Exchange, later shortened to SpotX, like a stock exchange, instead of people kind of trading on it themselves, we had our own traders who would fulfill orders that would then get placed. But the orders were slow and we were losing money for a long time. But eventually, it kind of started kicking in. We started getting more orders. And we also had a discipline around the inventory that we worked with where we made it a requirement that any publisher, supplier that we worked with, they would have to be technically integrated into our platform. So through that, we would see the IP address and see a lot of information related to the ad call. You could tell geographically where it was, if there was other information or cookies on it that could be used for targeting, right? And this is, gosh, now, like, I mean, probably 2009, 2010, right? So it's early and still in kind of the digital advertising world. And so we looked at kind of what had happened in the display market and with the banner ads, right? And so there was one of the supply side platform companies that had commissioned Forrester Research to do a study on will there be programmatic trading of banner ads in like kind of the banner ad ecosystem. And Forrester came back and said, yeah, we see point to these signs. And this company, which was called AdMeld, wound up being very successful and got bought by Google. So we thought, okay, that's interesting. That happened with display. There's Video has some different aspects to it. Display is more of a 
direct response model, whereas video is more of a brand model as far as the purpose that advertisers purchase that type of advertising. So we we also called Forrester, like we basically stole a page out of their playbook and we said, okay, Forrester, we want to commission you a study to see if that's going to, if programmatic is going to be a way that video ads get trafficked online. And they came back and wrote this big thesis. And so then we kind of became thought leaders in the area, which was great because at this point, like the company is based in Westminster, Colorado. When we would go sometimes to trade shows or talk to potential investors, at this point we had no outside you know, investing other than our friends and family money. We had done another small friends and family round just into SpotX with some local investors, but no professional money. Uh, and we'd raised like another million bucks just to SpotX. And so, you know, but it was great. Like we would go and we would, you know, like go to these, you know, trade shows or whatever, meet with clients. And be like, where are you guys based? Are you in the Bay Area? Are you in New York? We're like, nope, we're in Colorado. Westminster, Colorado, right? Like <laughs> literally the suburbs. <laughs> we're the suburbs, right? We're right next to a Walmart. Um, which we kind of said it a little bit like tongue in cheek, but I also I really believe, you know, I'm a Colorado guy that and you don't want to generalize that all people in Colorado are the same, but there's I think some aspects of in general the way the people that I was raised around behave and my partner Mike's from Baltimore, right? It's, blue-collar town. It's just we weren't about like raising a ton of money, go big or go home. It was like, hey, let's figure out, raise a little bit of money, figure out what we can do kind of one step at a time, always wanting it to be a win-win with our employees, with our clients, with our vendors, and really kind of sticking to that kind of cultural philosophy, which I think is more reflective of the Coloradans that I know and grew up around than West Coast, East Coast, right? And so um, I think it actually really worked for us. And then also what worked for us is it's different now, and I'm psyched about, you know, the ecosystem that has developed in the front range, Denver-Boulder corridor. But back then, if you were a smart software engineer that wanted to work on some cutting-edge stuff in Colorado— there were a handful of companies that you would go work for, and we were one of them. And so we had great ability to attract and retain really smart engineers. And I think that was also super valuable for us. Um, now, we like we had to open our sales offices in, in New York and San Francisco and L.A. and Chicago. So we had like the salespeople there and doing their thing there. It worked for us. I'm, I've kind of digressed a little bit with the story. but um, No, I love it as a Coloradoan. I, I agree. I think that is generally a good representation of at least the people that I know as well. Did you, you grow know? up in Colorado? No, but I'm a, I feel like I'll be a native. How long do you have to live here to call yourself a native? I'm five years in. If I live here the rest of my life, does that count? I think it's all about the attitude. If you've been Thank here you, five years Steve. and you're embracing Thank it, you. you're in. Thank you. You're in the club. <laughs> feel like I am. I also wanted to say that I think it's so impressive that when you first realized, okay, Booyah is maybe not it, but let's take the engine and, and let's iterate on that. I don't know that a lot of people would have done that. Maybe they would have just thrown their hands up and said, you know what, Booyah didn't work, whatever. I'm going back to my job as an accountant. You didn't choose that path. Could you speak a little bit to being able to pivot like that and maybe speak to some listeners who are afraid to make a change or afraid to make a career change? Any yes. advice for them? Yes. I would love to. Okay. This is something I'm passionate oh, about. Oh, good. Let them hear it. Yeah, because I feel like, <laughs> look, 
I think there may be entrepreneurial visionaries out there that see around all the corners and know where everything's going. I don't happen to know any. I think the secret is not – and in fact, I think if you have some vision that you are like wed to and it like – it doesn't work, you can wind up beating your head against a wall, you know, in sticking to your guns on that. I think being flexible, being willing to pivot. So I, I think that's absolutely key to success and it's not about having this kind of – you need to have a plan, certainly, but – it's not about like seeing, you know, to Z, like if you can see to D and then when you get to C, you know, D looks like it's moved. Maybe we're going to go over here. Then doing that, I think that's what it's all about. And just having the confidence that even if, even though we don't know what, you know, Z is going to look like or R is going to look like, that we have the confidence that we have the team, we believe in each other and we have enough going for us that we think that, hey, we knew that there was going to be more video consumed online and that needed to be monetized through ads because it wasn't all going to be, you know, sponsored or paid through through subscription rather. That that model, macro trends were going to support it and that we would figure out a way to kind of get there. And then – so you, you don't need – I think part of my message is having trust that you don't know. Like nobody – like I think – Control and certainty around the future is an illusion, right? We all know that in life, in business. So you just got to trust that you're going to be able to figure it out and have the people that come work with you also trust and believe that Share collectively. Share that vision yeah, together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that they also – that you all believe together, hey, we're going to do this together. I believe in it. You guys believe in it. I, you know, I, I spoke before, you know, about like my dad – and, you know, after like – so like I came from a sports family. My grandpa was a baseball player. I didn't get that gene. I wasn't good, right? Like, but my dad always like really believed in me, like went to all my games, and I was bad. So like when I started in business, always believed in me, always thought I would be a big success, right? Like so when you have somebody who believes in you that much – my mom too. My mom passed away earlier though then it's a lot easier to believe in yourself. And when you believe in yourself, it's a lot easier to get other people to believe in you. You believe in them. Like you you also like you've got to hire people that have different abilities but like-minded sensibility about how we're going to cooperate together and then trusting that they're going to do their piece and you're going to do your piece. But yeah, getting back to like the point that you asked about, I think it's – just having confidence that you're going to have to pivot, that you don't know all the answers yet, that you'll figure it out. And that's also, it's exciting, but it's can be nerve wracking, but it's way, I mean, I've worked in the corporate world. I worked for a giant, you know, consulting accounting company. Like it's way, way, way more fun and exciting to be actually doing stuff that's impactful and not like I don't mean impactful in like we don't have a startup that really changed the world with our product, right? Like if it was working well, we would help Procter & Gamble sell toothpaste more effectively, right? Like that's not really helping mankind. What we help it's helping though, hygiene. <laughs> right, maybe <laughs> Which helping people's breath. <laughs> kind of helps mankind. <laughs> in a small, small way, right? Um, 
Thanks for that. Yeah, yeah I feel good. <laughs> uh, but no, it's more like we helped the people that kind of work with us. I feel like they helped me. I helped them and my partner. Like we all have better lives because of kind of what we did together. And it's a lot more rewarding than being a cog in a wheel. But it's also stressful, right? Like there were, especially in the earlier days, you know, up until like, you know, kind of three, four years ago, there were a lot of things that like if I didn't do them, they wouldn't get done. If they didn't get done, we might fail as a business, which is a lot of pressure, but it's also exhilarating. Do you remember having any early thoughts when you guys first walked out of that meeting and thought, okay, let's do our own thing. Let's create Booyah. Were you scared? Probably, yeah. Yeah, sure. But I think I was mostly excited. I feel like, again, you got to believe it's going to work. Like, and we were on fumes many times. I mean, we got to a point where I had to go and get another job, was doing Booyah on the side for no money. Mike was making no money. We had one employee who was a sales guy, you know, like, and just to kind of keep it going. And then we kind of got a little bit of traction and literally clawed our way back from it. So, yeah, I mean, and there were people who gave us money. We all knew, right? We were either related to them or we'd basically <laughs> shared a roof with all of them except for the guy who gave us the Lamborghini at some point or another. And so, like, knowing, and even though they all knew it up front, but, like, hey, it could be a zero ultimately. Like, thinking about having to make the call where it's like, hey, sorry, it was zero. You don't want to make that call, you know? No. But I love your sentiment around kind of positivity and helping others. And you mentioned your dad. And I feel like when you grow up with a cheerleader, it's easy to turn around and be a cheerleader for others, you know. And yeah. I think I, I see that in kind of what you guys have done. And can you tell me a little bit more about Mike and kind of your guys' relationship? And so you guys are both. And also tell me about Mike and tell me where SpotX is now. Yeah, Walk yeah, us through sure. that. Yeah. So Mike – is the best. He's so hardworking, so smart. I mean, he literally is the kind of CEO who, like, the first thing he does in the morning is check our stats, check, because we have, like, real-time reporting, right, to see what's going on. And if something looks amiss, if some if stats are down, he's sending out emails, why are things down? If stats are way up, he's sending out emails, is this too good to be true? Something wrong. Skeptic. He's a skeptic. <laughs> he's, a, you know, like a, just wanting to make sure, yeah. right? And because he's doing that, everybody else is doing that too, right? Because they know, hey, the the boss is, he's tuned in. He's paying attention. He cares. And this was after, right? So we, you know, we sold the company in kind of two pieces in 2014 and 2017 to a company called RTL Group, which is the biggest TV broadcasting company in Europe. So at this point, like, he's still doing this when we have no ownership, but, like, that's how much he cares. Super smart. He's not technical. Like, he's not an engineer, but he understands the technology way better than I do to the point where he can talk to the product people talk to our CTO, who's another amazing guy that Mike had actually worked for. Though, so they've been working together longer than I've known Mike. So yeah, I mean, he's awesome and like could not have asked for a better partner to do it with. And the other thing too is like there were things that – the things that I did, like the 
non-technical operations, the financial piece, managing our legal side. He trusted me absolutely completely. And the things that he did, strategy, managing the product, sales team, I trusted him absolutely. And then we would just like check in with each other on where things were at. And then if anything ever came up, an issue, 98% of the time we would be in sync on kind of how to go about it or, or like we would hash it out together. But also like we had this, and this is fun now in hindsight, but like, you know, because we were so underfunded and when we were reselling back in the Booyah days, one of this Yahoo search products, we would pay Yahoo with Mike's Amex. And so we would be cranking like $200,000 worth oh, of Amex points. Oh, man, that gives points, me anxiety. <laughs> right? Like, but like we had all these points, so we would travel yeah. on the points. We never bought plane tickets. We never bought hotel rooms. And we would travel. Like when we go to trade shows or any meetings, like we would share a room. Like, you know, it's two guys in their 30s. Like we're bunking up. Not a bed, but a room. And um, – <laughs> And even when, like, so we finally raised some money from a venture firm. We sold a quarter of the company in 2010 to a firm called HIG. And, like, they're based in Miami. We had to go down to Miami um, and, like, pitch to kind of, like, the the six partners that were in this particular fund. And we flew down there. And somehow, like, John Kim, who was the guy who was on our board who had, like, led this investment for them, he knew that, like, we did this. This was our thing, like, when we traveled. we So he, like— he mentioned it as like a point of pride. Like these guys watched their money so tight. They traveled here on Amex points and are sharing a room, right? So like, but that Have was- Have a little sympathy. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or like if we give these guys money, you can trust that they're, they're not, not going to blow it. it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, which is sort of a thing I think now, like, because I do get asked by people starting companies or if they raised money or and I'm on the board of another company. And my thing is like, look, you know- Whatever your plan is, even if it's the best plan, it's not going to go like you think. It's going to take longer. It's going to cost more, right? Like, I mean, I know you guys are launching soon. When did you plan on launching? Are you on Early schedule? July, and now it's going to be mid-July. So Okay. Okay. You're great. Yeah. Right. And it was a soft date from the beginning. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but, I mean— There's been no tears yet. Yeah. All right. So, but, you know, like in most cases, I mean— like everything in business and life, like a lot of times it just doesn't go as you think it's going to go. So a big part of my advice is, hey, like shepherd your financial resource and don't go like – don't go hire a bunch of salespeople for something that you haven't like launched and tested yet with your optimistic thought that – you know, like be optimistic but kind of plan for a non-optimal, you know, rollout because it probably won't be optimal, you know? Hey, it's Sam, the producer of the show. Just wanted to take a quick second to thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Sliced Podcast. If you like what we do, subscribe and give us a review wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Coming up, Steve guides us through his journey with SpotX and gives us a glimpse into what the future holds for him and his company. And you guys have done a lot of planning, which brings us to today. So tell us what the state of affairs yeah. is for SpotX today. Yeah, yeah. Great. So like I said, we sold the two-thirds of the company in 2014 to RTL, and then they had an option to buy the last third in 2017, which they exercised. Part of that, they wanted us to stick around, me and Mike, to, and continue running the company. So we agreed to do that. They were great. They kind of left us operating independently. We did some stuff with some of their other companies in the RTL group, but um, 
you know, for the most part, let us kind of do our own thing. But then we were we were kind of tired, and Mike's like, "Yeah, I think I'm maybe done. Like, I'm gonna get my notice." And I'm like, "Well, then me too, right? Like, I'm I'm wiped out." So we told, and we there'd been a switch in the CEO. Like, this was sort of the third CEO at RTL that we'd had. That, we're flying to yeah, Europe all the time. That we, burns you out. You yeah, know? I mean, the first trip to Europe, you're like, "Ooh, this is great." You know, I'm going to Europe for business. Like. The 16th, you're like, okay. The jet lag just starts to wear on you. Yeah, right. You know, you're going for like a two-day meeting. You wake up at 2.30 in the morning, yep. right? Just brutal. And so we just had kind of had it. So we gave our notice, and they said, okay, you know, we're going to have to get replacements for you. But then pretty quickly they came back and said, you know what? We actually, like, we're kind of changing our strategy a little bit, going to be more Europe-focused. You guys are really more of a U.S. and global play. So we actually think we're going to sell SpotX. And will you guys, will you manage the sale for us? This was in the kind of late summer, early fall 2019. And we said, sure. Because we wanted to, you know, like this is kind of our professional life's work. We wanted to see it kind of land in a good place and obviously care a ton about the people that work there. So yeah, we said, we're like, absolutely. So we started that, hired bankers, had some meetings, and then COVID hit. So that all got paused, kind of got dusted off again. And we restarted basically in September of uh, last year, started having meetings again. And then that process culminated in the sale to Magnite, which was signed at the end of February and closed at the end of April. And Magnite is a similar company. They're like a supply-side platform company, digital advertising, more omni-channel. So they do video and display. But they were probably our biggest competitor on the video side. We had a bigger footprint with connected television, which is, you know, like the TV ad market's the biggest ad market in the world. And and it's not a right a shock to think that, right? Like a lot of that consumption is shifting from linear television, cable television to app-based connected TV, smart TV, right? And so um, we had a, you know, a great footprint there and a lot of traction. So Magnet viewed it as a consolidation play. So we had a great outcome. We wound up um, like the Transaction value was $1.2 billion. Wow. Um, which is... Billion with a B. Nuts, right? $1.2 wow. billion. Which, like, when I say that, I'm always like, God, I sound like I'm bragging. No, but, you should. You worked hard. <laughs> but, but part of it, too, is just like, it just is, sort of blows my mind. Like, the total amount that we raised into the company is $13 million. So $13 million, and 14 years later... It sold for $1.2 billion. To a competitor, no less. Yeah. which But part of it, I think, like, there were some other bidders involved. One was a SPAC, which would have been a nightmare. Like, you know, it was like this private equity-backed SPAC. And so we essentially, you know how that works, we would have been like a public company without, like, spending the year to 18 months preparing to be a public company. And just even with the process – So we, and the other thing that's crazy is because of COVID – the three bidders, and they were really like hot and heavy bidders in our auction uh, that was managed by our bankers, was all done virtually, all Zoom calls, the the meetings, the diligence. And then, you know, like we 
close the transaction without ever having one face-to-face meeting with, uh, like, we had met a couple of the guys before, but not in the context of the transaction. So I never would have thought, like, that you could have a billion-dollar transaction that could close without one face-to-face meeting. Shaking a hand? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. But it did. Um, And, I mean, part of it was, you know, like, they knew that, hey, if we, I think Magnate knew if we hung around out there, we would be a really fierce competitor for them. We had a head start, like I said, with connected TV, which is, I think, where a lot of the value was perceived to be. And they also, like, they had acquired a, a few different companies, so they kind of knew how to do that, integrate. They were public already. They knew how to kind of make that happen. And, you know, if we would have gone public through this SPAC, gosh, you know, like it was a, a long, like in 2014 when we did the initial transaction and we had kind of a... I was having to do a lot more. Like our lawyer, Michael Stack, and I, we worked like 70 days in a row that summer uh, before that transaction. We, we sold the first two-thirds. And it like it took years off my life. And my wife was like, oh, my God, you know, this is like – I'm so glad this transaction's done. This is kind of killing you. And then when she saw like the, you know, the last month of our transaction process before we sold the Magnite, and she's like, okay, like – we have young kids and you can't do this. This is, you know, and she's like, what's going to happen if you guys, you know, merge into this back? And I'm like, yeah, we're going to be public. It's going to be really hard. And she's like, well, I don't think you should do it. I'm like, well, it'll be great for our people. Like it'll be a lot of opportunity. And she said, she had this great line, which I tell my friends all the time. She's like, I think you need to think about the people living in this house right now <laughs> and prioritize those people, which I was like, okay. The people closest <laughs> to exactly. you. Um, but yeah, so we're now a wholly owned sub of Magnite. Uh, it's so cool. Yeah, it is cool. And so I'm going to be, I'm moving on. I'm, my last day is going to be July 31st. They have a CFO. He's awesome. I'm going to be, I'm just helping with transition stuff, and then I'm going to be in a consulting capacity through the end of the year. Mike right now is in a consulting capacity now. But it's, I mean, I'm psyched. The Magnite folks are great. They have a great management team. I think the prospects for the business are incredible. I'm really psyched for our people that are continuing on there. There has been some folks who've decided to leave, and they did do like a. There was a small layoff. It wasn't huge, but you know there were just some like overlapping positions, like mine, right? Like yeah. they had a CFO, and I'm not suited to be a public company CFO. It's or it's not my aptitude or my like really skill set. Well, what do you feel like is next for you? Do you know? It's a better question. I don't know. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm tired from kind of yeah. everything that's gone on, and it's been great. But uh, I definitely want to spend time, you know, kind of enjoying my family. But I I want to stay in business. You know, I want to keep active. I'm on the board, as I mentioned, of another company. I got asked to be on the board of another one recently. So I'd like to maybe do some board work, some investing, some consulting. I do feel like I kind of know more than I even realize. And it comes up like when I'm in board meetings of this company that I'm on the board of, like I'm like, okay, no, don't do that. Like we did that and this is why it was a mistake. Like, And it's stuff that to me is now almost intuitive or obvious because, you know, we have this experience, which, you know, I love, as I said, right, like the – I think working in an early stage company as part of that team – whether you start it or join it, 
is so rewarding and way better than I think working for a bigger organization, in my opinion, just because you have more impact and you were able to like kind of, I don't know, just do more. And it's, you know, it's a kind of like a thinner bench. So like they need everybody to do things. And also culturally, right? Like the things like we were 450 people when we sold a Magnite, you know, and that was maybe stretching for me like the size limit where it was comfortable or effective. Like I loved when we were 30, 50, 80 people. Because then, and also it sounds weird, but I loved the time. And maybe this is just, you know, kind of rose colored glasses in hindsight. But when we still had like, we were struggling, there was an existential threat to the business. And everybody's then like fighting together for survival of the business and to make something happen. And when you have that, you know, like then you get like, you just get galvanizing bonds with your colleagues. And so like the, we had a cookout on Friday night and had like some of the, like I called it the Spotix OGs over to the house with their, you know, spouses and partners. And yeah, it was just like, you know, feel like you've just really been through a lot with these folks and have a real affection for them. And that's, you know, like a real benefit is I didn't think I'd wind up with getting so many great friends out of a business type thing, but it's like, we just went through a lot together. But then as you get bigger, right? Like we got bigger we had some more success. Teams get bigger. And as a result, you start kind of working more with folks on your own team. And and then like some team, you know, like dynamics, group dynamics take effect where like maybe the teams are – you got your company objectives, but then they're thinking about their team objectives. People are thinking about their own kind of power bases or, you know, like the folks that we've hired that were either first professional job or right out of college – culturally, they were totally aligned with us. And we would always say, you know, if we saw someone like posturing or politicking, we would, we call it like whack-a-mole. We'd be like, hey, we didn't literally whack anybody, but we would say like, hey, you know, come on, there's so much opportunity out there. Let's focus our energy on that opportunity and tackling those problems and not the infighting. And then as a result, we would back that up with, if something went wrong, we said, listen, we expect things to go wrong. We're gonna, it's like skiing. If you're not skiing hard enough and pushing yourself, then if you don't fall down, that means you're not pushing yourself hard enough, right? So like, there's going to be mistakes. That's cool. We just need to learn from them. You're never going to get blamed. You're never going to get tagged with it. And when people know that they feel the trust, they're not going to get blamed for messing up. Then also like on the same coin, they don't have to worry about then credit. Blame and credit are like two sides. Like hope and fear kind of, you know? And so that, like, I think empowered people to do that. Like, we did have, like, some issues where, especially people that had worked at bigger companies where it was political, had come in, and then they started, you know, jockeying around. And there was one guy who was very talented, good manager, new ad tech, but he was kind of a political animal and would, like, make promises to people to try and engender loyalty to himself personally and then be like, oh, yeah, sorry, I really tried to get this from the company, wouldn't do it, you know. And we were like, after that went on a little bit, like we fired the guy. And like people were surprised because he was he's a talented guy, but it was just like, you know, like that kind of behavior was just not tenable and it was going to lead to more problems down the road. And then people emulate the behavior of their managers, you know. And so you set the tone and you act a certain way 
And that's – you can't expect the people that work in the organization to act any different, which like you heard that like in business school. But you're like, yeah, people are who they're going to be, but it's so true, I feel like. It so. rubs off on you for sure. And cancer is a strong word. But, you know, it takes one person to come in and spread, you know, whatever negativity or that behavior, right. whatever, to other yes. people. You know, rub, inevitably rubs off, I feel like. Yes, yes. And, and also it's, yeah, bad behavior or – like an attitude, like defeatist attitude. Like if someone – you can have the exact same circumstances and if you have someone who comes in and be like, oh, this sucks. It's never going to work, you know, then other people will be like, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe it is never going to work, you know. But like so you got to kind of keep – I don't want to say Pollyanna or keep – but you got to keep like the realistic, positive, we're going to figure it out. And we always believed in the opportunity and believed in the people that we had kind of – working with us and most of the people that were working with us then like they believed it too so yeah awesome well in closing i would like to know when you take a look back at your career how ultimately do you measure success that's a great question gosh i would say i feel like life is about people we're social animals not meant to be you know kind of doing things on our own. And so I feel like the, I would hope that like when I'm gone, if people say, hey, you know, having known or interacted or worked with Steve, my life's better because of that, then, then I feel like I will have had a successful life. I think that's wonderful. Is there anything else you want to add? Anything else our listeners should know about you or your journey? I don't think so. No, I really enjoyed the opportunity to um, to share it. Uh, I love telling our story. And, uh, you know, I mean, it took a long time. But I think if you're out there, if you're starting a business or part of an early stage business, you know, like, just trust that it's not going to be smooth, but it's worth it. So kind of hang in there, pivot, work with the right people. It's way better than working for the man or the woman. thank you steve that was great this was wonderful thank you so much it's really my pleasure thank you to learn more about today's guest please visit startupblogpost.com be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts check back weekly for new episodes and follow us at slice podcast on instagram twitter and facebook